This is episode 208 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing the 2018 Annual Enrichment Conference with Werner Mischke. This is session two, Honor Status Reversal, Bible and Gospel Motif. I slept good. I feel energized. uh, And I'm excited because of the word of God. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the living word of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the head of the church and for including us in your story. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making the word of God alive. And we want to lean into your grace this morning, God. And we want to trust you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us in a fresh way. Oh God, would you do that through your word today? And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you as the King of glory, the author of salvation. the one who makes all this possible. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are uh, considering the subject from shame to honor, the honor-sharing gospel for our multicultural world. And we're going to do our second session, which is called Honor Status Reversal, Bible and Gospel Motif. Now, I was just talking with uh, Pastor Don. Where are you, Don? Oh, right there, okay. And and he was asking me, so I... I uh, I pastor a, a church in, uh, in a rural community, all white, and uh, you know, we're being encouraged to you know, share the gospel or communicate the gospel in ways that go beyond our own culture. Well, how does this relate to me? I think Don speaks for a lot of us here. And... Uh, the truth is, yeah, I go to a mostly white church in Scottsdale. And uh, so here was my answer to Don. I said, this is not, first of all, about reaching people from other cultures. This is, first of all, about hermeneutics. When we do hermeneutics, and I don't, I'm not going to read from a textbook here, but I think we know that good hermeneutics means understanding the historical, literal, cultural, grammatical, yeah, grammatical, historical, cultural, altogether, you know, we do, it's, it's the literal. Okay, and what I'm saying is that if we are to properly interpret scripture, scripture we must 
understand the social context. This is in every good hermeneutics textbook, they tell you, you must understand the historical and cultural context. Cultural context, that means cultural values. And this is where this category of honor-shame is so significant. So, so I, I want to encourage all of you who are pastors, or uh, some of you are teachers of, you know, other, others. We're all, to some extent, teachers and pastors, I think, who are gathered here. This, this is about understanding the Word of God in its proper historical and particularly social context. Now, here's the incredible thing about it. It doesn't only give us greater authority in than teaching and preaching the Word of God because we are getting closer to the way the original authors and hearers of Scripture understood the Word of God, but it makes us relevant to people for whom honor and shame are vital. And that is not just about people in China or Japan or in the Muslim world or Latin America. Or, you know, this, this relates to people everywhere. Let me ask you something uh, about your church. Is anybody in your church concerned about their reputation? What is that? That's honor, shame. Or social status. That's honor, shame. How, do, how am I perceived by my community? What is that? That's honor, shame. So I want to dispel the idea that this is just about reaching people from other cultures. Okay? Great. All right. Let's, let's go forward. So today we are looking at the motif in Scripture and the gospel of honor status reversal. And in my book, I deal with uh, nine dynamics of honor and shame and uh, in the honor-shame wheel. And then in the middle, I have this other dynamic. It's called honor status reversal. Now, how did I find this dynamic? I found it by reading the Bible, and what I've done is uh, I've, I underlined things in my Bible where there was a change in honor status, or from low to high, from high to low, and, and it's, it's all over the Bible. So we're going to get back to that later. But so I believe uh, it's a motif. Now here's how we define motif. It's a distinctive feature or dominant idea in an artistic or literary composition. So if some of you are musicians, you know, there's a certain musical phrase that repeats in the composition. In works of literature, there's certain ideas that repeat in, in that work of literature. And uh, the Bible has various motifs. And so, little discussion time for you all. 
What is an example of a biblical motif with which you are familiar? So just take two minutes, turn around with two or three of you, just talk to each other. What is a, a, an example of a biblical motif with which you are familiar? Go ahead. Okay, good. So, I think this idea of a, of a theme that runs through Scripture is something that we're uh, all familiar with. And so, what we are uh, proposing for you today is that honor status reversal is a major motif in Scripture. Certainly not the only one, but we believe it is a major one. So here's how we define motif, or, or excuse me, here's how we define honor status reversal. It is when a person, family, or people have their honor status reversed. So in the scripture, you will discover verses and stories where it begins with high honor or high status, and then it goes down to low status or shame, and then it returns to high status or sometimes even much higher status than what the person had to begin with. And then there are also stories and verses that simply go from low to high, from shame to honor, from low status to high status, okay? And the point here is that the end result is honor, okay? So that's the first kind of honor status reversal. It's where the end result is honor. And then we have the second kind where the end result is shame, from shame to honor, back down to shame, or from honor down to shame. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some examples. So Adam and Eve were the first ones. They had the honor of being first in God's uh, uh, creation of humanity, and they sinned. And as a result, they were excluded from the presence of God. So they went from high honor to shame and exclusion. And then God covered their shame. We talked about that yesterday. And with Abraham, look at uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God speaks to Abram and he says, I want you to leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. What is that? That's leaving your source of honor. You know, in our culture, 
you know, get out of the house when you're a certain age and go somewhere else and get an education and serve in the military. These things are celebrated. Not in Abraham's time. You, you, you would want to stay in your country with your kindred and in your father's house. Your father's house, by the way, isn't a building. It's your, your community. It's the people in your family and those who are serving your family. Leave your country, your kindred, your father's house. Unthinkable in the ancient world. But what does God say to Abraham or Abram at this time? In, in verse 2, he says, And I will make your name great. God promises him great honor. So we see the loss of his traditional source of honor, and then we see him gaining an honor in God that he never had before. Okay? By the way, if you back up one chapter in Genesis, you go to chapter 11, what happens in chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. Okay, why did God judge uh, the people at the Tower of Babel? Because they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's right. So we have this echo between Genesis 12 and uh, between Genesis 11, God judging the people for wanting to make a name for themselves. And in Genesis 12, 2, God says, I will make your name great. So as Westerners, the idea of pursuing name greatness is, yeah, as Christians, we say, this is, this is bad, you know, this is pride. This is wrong. And it is true this is pride, that this is prideful, this is sinful, this is wrong. However, God is not opposed to name greatness for a person, a people, a community, if that honor is derived from God. Okay, then there's Job. He was the greatest man in the East in Job chapter 1. What does that mean, greatest man? It means that he was the most honorable. Of course, he lost everything, including his health, and he became the very picture of shame, didn't he? But then at the end, God restored double, right? That's what it says in the Bible. It restored double what he had at the beginning. How about Joseph? Coat of many colors. Most favored son. Sold into slavery. Horrible shame. Put into prison when he gets to Egypt because he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And then he rises to become Prime Minister of Egypt. Amazing story. So full of drama and tears and just, oh my goodness. Honor status reversal. The story of Joseph from Genesis 37 to chapter 50. What a chunk of scripture about this one man. 
Then you've got Moses, taken from the, the slave community, the Hebrew community in Egypt, and he rises to become the prime minister. You've got Saul, who is taken uh, from uh, a, a tribe that's nothing special, a village that's nothing special, but the dude was big, he was handsome, and he was a good warrior. You know, he looked like, hey, this guy could be king. He became the king, and then things didn't turn out very well at the end. What happened to Saul? At the end, he was in a battle with the Philistines. He ends up falling on his sword, killing himself. And then what did the Philistines do? They cut his head off. Beheaded, you know. And then what did they do? Even more shameful. They took his body and they put it on a post, on a wall. King of Israel, headless, on a wall in the, in Philist, in, uh, among the Philistines. Despicable shame. Honor status reversal. But David, a different story. Now therefore, thus, says, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, and I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Oh, can you feel the honor here, the honor status reversal from a nobody, a, a, you know, taking care of sheep to a prince like the great ones of the earth. It's awesome, isn't it? How about Esther? Queen Esther, she didn't start out as a queen, did she? No, she came from the lowly Hebrew community and won the beauty contest. Book of Esther loaded with honor-shame dynamics, right? By the way, you can go to Amazon and for three bucks you can get a paraphrase of the book of Esther um, through an honor-shame paraphrase of the book of Esther. Brings out all the honor-shame dynamics. You almost don't need it because if you just read it in the regular translation, I mean, it's just saturated with it. And how about the other one from, from honor down to shame? Who does that represent in the story? Haman, Absolutely. He built, built uh, the, gal, the gallows for Mordecai, and he himself gets hung on the gallows. It's a great story. I mean, it's... <laughs> you know what? It's a comedy. You're right. It is. We're supposed to laugh. And the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but God is in the background. Right? God is above. In the story above all stories. And then in the prophetic books, man, I just had a blast reading the prophets. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the, 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 the long ones and the short ones, honor and shame all over the place. If you're just alert to it a little bit, it's wonderful. So, Isaiah 40, verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. I remember I, growing up in a German family every Christmas time, 
we would listen to the Messiah, Handel's Messiah. Anybody familiar with that great piece of music? Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low. That's just great composition reflecting the words, right? Well, I, you know, I listen to that, you know, I don't know how many times. What does it mean? Got no idea. Just a nice piece of poetry. But you see it in the context of this motif. Wow! Yes, this is what God does. This is the way he works in history. And then I was reading through Ezekiel. Strange stuff in there. But then I came to Ezekiel 17. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Hey, that relates to the Pacific Northwest. You got a lot of trees around. A lot of lumbering going on. We went to uh, Camp 18 for lunch yesterday with Royce. Man, they got these gigantic logs. I've never seen logs that big. You've got a lot of people in your, in your churches that are familiar. Maybe they're a part of the logging industry. I don't know. But here it is. Honor status reversal. Then... Apostle Paul, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then Jesus said, so the last will be first, and the first last. Uh, <laughs> I've been recently reading a biography of Paul, and uh, this, this scholar uh, was talking about how in 1 Corinthians 11, or se- excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul is making a joke. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll go back to the slide about Apostle Paul. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, He says in verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Okay. By the way, read 2 Corinthians and just count up how many times the word boast or boasting appears. It's crazy. Unless you understand the honor-shame dynamics of that social context, if, unless you understand that rivalry and honor competition and boasting are a part of the Roman culture into which Paul uh, spoke and lived and, you know, living in Tarsus, being a part of the Roman Empire, Antioch, these Roman cities, you know, writing to the church at Rome, 
This is a proven fact. Rome was held together by, by honor-shame dynamics from the bottom of the society to the top. So honor competition, making claims of honor. This is a part of the culture. People made plaques about what they did. You know, if they were, if they were a general, they would lead people into the battle. We were, I was first over the wall. I conquered this. They would then, after they conquered a city, they'd make great arches and they'd parade the army through the arches, uh, through, the, through these uh, great gates. Rome was the boasting capital of the world. Okay, so, so Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The Romans would say, I was first over the wall, and then we conquered. They'd make plaques. Maybe the guy ended up with a statue somewhere. Everybody needed to know your glory would be publicly displayed. This was the thing you did. This was normal. This was expected. But Paul says, the God and Father, verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forevermore knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. What's the joke? Well, in the Roman culture, you know, you boast about being the first over the wall. But you know what? I was the first one out. <laughs> I, was the, I wanted to get out of there. <laughs> the people in the Roman culture would have laughed at that. What's he trying to say? He says, I'm going to boast in my weakness. He says in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast except in the shameful cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to boast in. It's like it's, it's crazy in that culture. Who would believe in a crucified king? In a crucified Messiah? Are you crazy? That's why he called it foolishness in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or 2, right? 1 Corinthians 1. Foolishness. And when we look at the story of Jesus, we see this dynamic of honor status reversal in its climactic form in the Bible. So here is a uh, picture from page 2,525 in the English Standard Version Study Bible. 
Anybody have one of those? All right. And what it's referring to here is uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his trajectory in, in his life. And it's referring to Philippians 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we see here is a downward spiral of humiliation. Number one, he became human. That is an act of humiliation. Number two, he humbled himself to die. I mean, he could have come down, lived among us, and then gone back to heaven, finished his work, done what he had to do, and then was translated back up to heaven. Job done. No, he died. He experienced the corruption of death. But what kind of death? In public, naked. spit upon. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father the Bible teaches us that somehow in the mind and plan of the Trinity Christ would gain a name and honor that he didn't have before he was crucified and resurrected So this is an, adapt, an adaptation from that diagram in the ESV study Bible. The pre-incarnate pre glory of Christ, his eternal existence, his humiliation, his crucifixion, his exaltation to eternal glory. Sitting at God's right hand, Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to explore whether honor status reversal is also for believers. We've seen it apply in stories and verses and poetry. Could it be that honor status reversal is also for believers? So when, we're, when we think of Ephesians chapter 2, we think of the famous verses 
uh, 8 and 9 especially, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We love these verses as evangelicals. We're not sure quite what to do with verse 10. You know, not a result of works, but wait a minute. Then it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But we're not going to go there right now. What we're going to do is we're going to look kind of in detail at Ephesians chapter 2 and the context of verses 8 and 9 in, 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 the, in the verses, the context of, of the verses there. So you might want to look at your own Bible and you can see uh, in Ephesians 2 this dynamic, first of all, being an honor status reversal in relation to God. So verses 1 through 3, yeah, it's there on the screen. If you have a hard time seeing that, you can read it in your own Bible. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the sons of disobedience, what is that referred to there? A father with disobedient sons, these are shameful sons. By the way, did anybody look at uh, Ezekiel 16 last night? <laughs> I did talk to somebody who did. Ezekiel 16, loaded with honor and shame, isn't it? You, you could see that the people of God were in objective shame before their creator and bridegroom because of their disobedience. among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, of wrath like the rest of mankind. Just like the rest of mankind. Nothing special. Nothing exceptional. This is a picture, I believe, of shame. It doesn't have a whole lot of shame terminology there, but enough to let us know as we continue that there is an honor status reversal happening here. Because in verses 4 through 6, we have, but God. <laughs> have you ever preached on but God? I bet you you have. Yeah. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By the way, Christ, Jesus Christ, that's like his first name and his last name, right? No. Christ is not his last name. 
Christ is his title. He's Messiah King. Much better to think of the Christ, the King, prophesied in the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story of a Redeemer King who would come to make all things right, not only for Israel, but for all of humanity. So when you see the word Christ, it's loaded with regal, honor, shame, meaning. Because he's the king. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and sealed, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Honor status reversal, that's personal vertical. It's in relationship to God. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. But then we've got Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, and then verses 11 through 12, we have another honor status reversal and this is in relationship not to God, but it's, a, it's in relationship to God's people. So verses 11 and 12, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, so we've got to go back to the Old Testament and uh, think about David and Goliath. And what does he say about Goliath? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What is David actually saying there? Is he asking like a, just a question about factual, you know, what's his DNA profile? Uh, no. He's basically going... called the uncircumcised by the circumcised. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And then look, separated or alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Isn't this a description of shame? Look at those words, separated, alienated, strangers. Right, we're familiar with the term aliens. Right? I'm not talking about New Mexico. It's a part of our, you know, it's part of our um, political discourse, illegal aliens, about being uh, insiders versus outsiders. 
What Paul is simply saying here is that at one time, we were all outsiders in relation to God's people. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Is this a dis definition of objective shame? Whether we know it or not, I think it is. Not just a feeling, it's a fact. Bill and Jill, where are you? Yeah, okay, I was just talking to them about this. Do you see that there? The fact of their being excluded, right? From the people of God. But there's another but God in Ephesians 2, right? We don't have it on the slide here. Uh, maybe it would be good to look at that. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The atonement doesn't only deal with our vertical relationship with God, the atonement deals with conflict between Jew and Gentile and, by extension, conflict between peoples in conflict. Verse 16, or verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, a new humanity in place of the two, some of the ancient uh, writers talked about a third race. Our core identity is not this race or that race. Our core identity is Jesus. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Whew. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near, meaning peace to those who were excluded, and peace to those who are included. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Then verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Honor status reversal. Not per 
personal vertical, but social horizontal. And I'm not even looking at the Greek. I don't know Greek. But I don't think you need the Greek. I think if we looked at the Greek and we, you know, I think, I don't think we would discover, well, I'm sure we would discover new things, but this is plain. This is plain, is it not? So here's how I look at Ephesians chapter 2. And in your notes, you have a place where you can kind of mark things in. So in verses 1 through 7, we have an honor status reversal in relationship to God. And in verses 11 through 22, we have an honor status reversal, reversal in relationship to God's people. We have the personal vertical realm, and then we have the social horizontal realm. And the point of this is to show what salvation by grace through faith is in the context of the chapter. So salvation in Christ is the crux for restoring humanity's honor. Personally before God and socially through, through acceptance into God's people for good works. Loyalty is a part of what it meant to become a follower of Christ. You had a new king, new allegiance, new loyalty. So grace is completely unmerited, but there is an obligation understood in that social context. That's why for we were created in Christ Jesus for good works is there because that's about the loyalty aspect. Which has all kinds of implications for discipleship and so on. So, do you see it? Honor status reversal. It's a part of the gospel. So, if honor status reversal is part of the gospel, what does this mean for our ministry? I'd like you to talk about this for about five minutes, and then we'll bring a close to our session. Okay? Go ahead.
Hey, 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 I just got to tell you something real quick, okay. I, I remember reading once in a, in a book called Honor, uh, Ministering in Honor, Shame Cultures, and, and, and Jason Georges, who wrote that book, he's, he, he talked about in the legal framework of the gospel, we have uh, like going back to innocence, right? And he had a circle, okay? A circle. In other words, have you ever heard the phrase, it's as though you had never sinned? You know, justification, just as though you had never sinned. It's kind of like the blackboard had all this sin, and then it's wiped clean, right? It's just as though you had never sinned. It's true, okay? It's innocence, okay? So, but what's happening? We're going back to zero, right? So in this framework for the gospel, we're not... We're not going back to zero. We're gaining an honor we never had before. That's it.
Okay. So, one of the things that uh, I would like to do, and this is with uh, Mark and Jeremy's uh, encouragement, is to ask, okay, what does this mean for us practically? What does this mean, like it says, what does it mean for our ministry in terms of behavior? Okay. So what are your thoughts about that? Does anybody have um, something to say about that? We can take a few minutes to uh, discuss that. Any thoughts? Yes. session tomorrow we're, we're going to look at the problem of living in a polluted world and we're going to address the issue of sexual abuse and pornography being agents of sin as well as victims of sin just living in a broken world you know in the military people I mean people come home having done their duty honorably and there's a brokenness there and all kinds of mental and emotional and issues like that and it's, it's really hard to deal with. I don't want to pretend that we have simple answers to that. I do believe that as pastors and teachers of God's word, If you begin, if we begin to bring these issues of honor, shame to the surface from Scripture, um, it gives per people permission to bring those before God and before the community. And I think our, our communities need to be safe enough to welcome people who are dealing with broken brokenness in their lives. And so 
It's kind of interesting how, you know, Paul made a joke about, hey, I'm weak. You know, I ran away. Reminds me of that Monty Python movie, I Bravely Ran Away. You know? I mean, that, that's really what Paul is saying there in Philippians, or in 2 Corinthians 11. And, and it ends up magnifying the cross. And he ends up saying in verse chapter 12, you know, I'm weak. Because of my weakness and glorying in my weakness, I'm made strong. I think there's something there that, you know, we are so focused on, you know, the healthy, strong, athletic. And, and Paul is saying, man, I can hardly talk. I ran away. And I end up glory. He ends up glorying in the cross. I, I think there's something there where we can almost, I don't want to say celebrate weakness. I mean, but Paul said it, I glory in my weakness. For then, when I, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There's something there that when we see people who are vulnerable, you know, the needy people, we all know the people in our congregation who are needy. You know what? We need them. They draw energy away from us. They're lower status somehow. They're, Paul says, those with so-called greater honor give more honor to the ones who are of so-called lesser honor. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 25. Check it out. It's a hard issue. It's tough. It really is. I want to. I, I want to respond to you, Captain, for bringing that and, and, and honor you for bringing that to the surface because th these are real issues that we're facing in our in our congregations, and they are not easy. But as pastors and teachers of the Word of God, I think the Word of God gives us amazing resources to address these issues. I taught my, in, my, my uh, pastors in India. We went through honor, shame, honor status reversal like we've done here, except I did it all on a whiteboard, you know. It's really fun. I, I said, okay, here's how you can make this real to your villages. I said, go to, I think it's 2 Samuel 7, story of Mephibosheth. Who's Mephibosheth? He's lame. He's disabled. He is the picture of brokenness and shame. He's lived in a broken world. Doesn't say anything about why he's that way. Doesn't say that he was lame because he sinned. Just that was the circumstances of his life. And David says, I want him sitting at my table for the rest of his life. He restores his land, his family land. I mean, there's, you can unpack that. Check it out. 
That, that will make Ephesians chapter 2 ring loudly and deeply and emotionally in people's lives because it's a story. This is where prepositional truth, we've got a lot of it in the Bible. We've got we've to mix the story with the prepositional truth that makes it so that we can feel it. I don't know if that helps, but thank you for bringing that up to us and, and helping us confront the fact that as churches, how, how we deal with brokenness in our own church communities and, and, and uh, cities, towns, we need to put our arms around people who are struggling. They need to feel the affection and the acceptance of the brother and sister who sees them as honorable in Christ, regardless of what they've done. You know. It's kind of like You know, the fact that my father was mentally ill. It's like I've always thought of that. I said, man, what a bummer. I wish it never happened. But maybe that helped me identify with other people who are broken and who've had things in their lives that are wish they weren't there or wish they hadn't done or they're, they're, they feel defiled or ashamed. Or, you know what? It gave me a hunger to know Christ and his honor is displacing that shame. And as families of God, that social horizontal realm, I believe it's the church's responsibility for us to make that like flesh and blood. People need to feel it, the honor of God, the affection of God through relationships, through one another. So that's why I start my book by telling the story about my family and the shadow of shame that I had in my life growing up. I'm saying whatever shadow of shame you have in your life. Is a window. Emotionally. Into what Christ suffered. And what Christ has done for you. To absorb your shame. And absorb whatever defilement, defilement you feel whether you're an agent of that sin or whether you are a victim of someone else's sin or some combination. I think we need to close. Thank you. We'll, we'll see you later today. Oh, let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we love you.
none of this is possible without you. What you did for us, absorbing shame, rising from the dead, conquering sin and death and shame. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.